The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to look at Luke's, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You to receive Your Word, the words of life. For we cannot live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, that is what we need. And so this time for us is us sitting at a table being fed by our God. And Lord, I pray that You would fill us. I pray that we would see that these are the words of life. That we would see the necessity that is placed on these words. That we need these words to live. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I started working out around 10 years ago. It had never been a habit in my life before about 10 years ago. About 2012 is probably when it started. Now, if you would have asked me any time before that, any time in my 30 years of life before that, you know, tell me, is working out important? I would have been able to articulate, you know, all of the reasons why I should be working out. I had all the knowledge that the normal person who sits on the couch with, you know, with the remote, could tell you about working out. I could tell you the advantages, the health benefits. You see, my problem wasn't knowledge, and that rarely is the problem, right? My problem was motivation. So what finally got me off the couch after a 30-year sedentary lifestyle? My wife started working out. And and I'm just going to tell you that sometimes God can use very base things in someone's heart to get their attention. Call it pride. Call it competitiveness. I don't know. But I wasn't going to sit on the couch while my wife got in shape. And so that's what I did. I I said, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. And I remember the first few times we were doing like P90X at home And I remember just not even being able to put my shirt on the next day. 
that my muscles ache so bad. And you know, motivation's a funny thing when you think about it. So I mean, one moment you can be so motivated, and then the next moment it's just gone. I mean, you can just see it so clearly. I am going to do this. I resolve like we get this around January 1, don't we? January is a new year, and we get motivated for so many things, and it's so fresh in our minds. And, and, and then as time goes on and life kind of adjusts back into its normal mold, we, we lose it. Or maybe during a sermon. I, I've been there, right, where you, you're sitting there, and in that moment, you have that insight. In that second, you think, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I am going to go from here with all these elaborate plans for how I'm going to live that out. And then the, it's like sometimes I think that the door of the church is like an amnesia door. You know, we walk back into life, and, and it's just like we start thinking about what we've got to feed our, these, these hungry kids, and you know they're, they're pushing each other on the way to the parking lot, and and you recognize that, that it's not so easy after all. That motivation can leave just as soon as it got there. And so back in June, um, we made the decision to demo our kitchen because you can't renovate it without demoing it. And I wasn't motivated to renovate it until I demoed it, right? And so took the hammer and we started going to town. And I told Nikki before we started, I said, listen, life is crazy right now. If I'm going to start this kitchen renovation, something from my life has to go. And so I'm going to get plenty of exercise doing this kitchen, and so I'm not going to work out, okay? That's what's going to go. I am going to spend the time that I would normally spend working out and more, and I'm going to put it all into this kitchen. And so I decided to push pause on working out. Five months later... I was doing neither. <laughs> the kitchen was sitting there unfinished, and I was just, I don't know, letting myself go. Ten pounds heavier, <laughs> ten pounds heavier than this time last year, I know that. But I had told myself a story. I had told myself I can't start working out until the kitchen is finished. That was the story, the narrative in my mind. And I was living by that story, even though that story quit being true like four months ago. But that was the narrative. And in order for me to find the motivation to get back in the gym, I had to change that narrative. I had to recognize that that's not a true narrative, and I need to replace it with a, with a story that is accurate so that, so that my motivation will return. So, so where am I going with this? Well, it's just simply this. We've been looking at the call that Jesus gives to the church to make disciples. I bet that there's very few of you in here this morning that I, need to, that I need to educate about the truth of that call anymore, right? Like, we know that Jesus calls His church to be a witness. We know that Jesus calls the church to make disciples. This is true. This is clear in Scripture. We can point to, to so many different points. So, like, I don't need to spend time convincing you. That's not any of our problems. The problem, like it so much, so always, so often is, our problem is motivation. Our problem is keeping Jesus' call front and center 
in our lives through all the other things that are going on and all the other things that distract us and all the other things that are so important, that are so urgent, that so often call for our attention. And part of our problem is that we've got to learn, and you've heard me say this before, but we have to learn to live in Christ's story instead of another story. Jesus has got a story, and it's the true story. So let me be real clear about that, because sometimes we hear story, and we think that that's synonymous with like something made up. And it's not like, oh, there's all these stories out there, and you just pick the one that you like and live by. That's not the way it works. No, there's one true story, and there's all kinds of other stories that aren't true, but tell you they are true. And they tell you, and they make promises to you that if you live by me, if you live according to my story, you will flourish. But they all lead to death. And then there's only one story. There's another story over here, the one that Jesus is telling. And Jesus says, if you will live by this story, this is where it's at. This is where your life finds meaning and purpose. This is where you flourish. This is where your will and the will of God join. And, and it becomes one. And everything works the way it's supposed to. And God gets glory in your life. This is the story. Listen, that story is really important to this passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke's Gospel. It's really important for Luke, that we get this story right. And so this is how we're going to approach this text today. We're going we're to look at the question. We're going to approach it through the lens of motivation. How does Jesus motivate His people to follow the mission that He's given us? And the first thing that I want us to, to see in verses 44 and 45 is Scripture and motivation. Scripture and motivation. So before we dig into 44 and 45, let's back up and let's figure out what's going on. So look with me at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, and what are they talking about? They're talking about the reality of all that just happened, Jesus' death, and now He's made a few appearances, so there's rumors that He's been seen. And so His disciples are gathered, and they're talking about this. Jesus Himself stood among them. So they're talking about it, and all of a sudden, there's Jesus. And said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. He's showing them His scars. That it is I myself, touch me and see, I'm a real person, I'm physical, I'm here in your presence, I'm not a spirit, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? It's almost like Jesus is wanting to drive home that he's not a spirit, like, Hey, my stomach's growling. Bring me something to eat. Because you would have thought you saw a ghost too. I mean, you just saw him dead. And he's showing them that this is his flesh. He's been resurrected. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. I love that they eat fish together. This little detail, that this common thing that human beings do that we never think much about, but we have to do it several times a day or we die. And Jesus and his friends eat some fish. And he took it, 
and ate it before them. So, so there's the context. Jesus is resurrected. They're doubting. They're disbelieving. They've been despairing. They've been crying. You know, their eyes are probably burning and red from all the tears they've shed over the last few hours, the last few days. And, and, and here is Jesus before them. And, and now he's going to say something to them. And what he says is really important. It's really important not just for them. It's really important for us. It's really important for the entire history of the church. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So what does Jesus do? Jesus appears and He gets out His Bible and He says, hey, we need to have a Bible study. And what's fascinating is that this isn't the first time Jesus did this after His resurrection. Jesus has already had a similar Bible study here in Luke. In 24, earlier, beginning in verse 13, he finds two disciples going to a village named Emmaus, and they're walking along, and he joins them. And in verse 21, he asks them some questions, what's been going on, and they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So in other words, we thought that Jesus was the King, the Messiah, but he was crucified. We thought he was going to come and deliver us, but he's dead. And so they're walking along the road, and they're sorrowful. They have no idea that they're talking to Jesus. And Jesus, look at what he does with them, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He has a Bible study with them. What is it about the Scriptures that causes Jesus to keep having these conversations about what it all means? In our passage, he, he interprets them, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and, and earlier in the road to Emmaus, Moses and all the prophets. He's not just pointing to proof texts. He's not just saying, hey, I've got a verse here, and this one's about me, and I've got a verse here, and this one's about me, and there's a verse there, and that's about me. No, when it says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what it's referring to is the entire story. Every single bit of the Scripture was pointing to Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not just a few key passages. It's the totality of it. You cannot understand your Bible unless Jesus is your starting point. He is the interpretive key to unlocking everything else in the Scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what you should have seen because God's been telling you from the beginning. From the moment, listen church, from the moment 
that God first spoke words of revelation to human beings. He was telling us about Jesus who was to come. And then Jesus comes and He says, hey, you should have seen it. It was all leading to this. And it's significant that all of this is happening after the resurrection. Because listen, sometimes we lose a sense of this because you know, we, we're pretty kind of late in the story of Christianity. This whole thing, we're sort of 2,000-something years later. But if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, like the ancient equivalent of CNN and Fox News would not have shown up to cover this story. Do you understand that? Like, Jesus was just another criminal crucified on a Roman cross. There, there would not have been any hoopla over it. This would not have been a noteworthy event in the history of the world. The, re, the reason why we're talking about it today is because He defeated death. Because three days after He died, He was raised. And Him being raised is essential to understanding the story. Because what he's telling them when he says, hey, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they're all about me. What he's saying is, everything that's been predicted has been fulfilled in me. A new age has dawned. Everything that the Bible, everything the prophets kept pointing to. When Jeremiah said that there was going to be a new covenant and all of your iniquity would be forgiven, what Jesus is saying is, that's happened now. When Ezekiel said that God was going to give you a heart transplant and He was going to take out your old heart of stone and He was going to replace it with a heart of flesh. He was going to replace your, your old spirit. And he was going to put a new spirit within you. Jesus is saying, that's happened. That's what I'm here for. That's what I've done. That's why I was crucified. That's why I'm talking to you right now. The Scriptures are being fulfilled in your presence right now. All the promises, church, about reconciliation and forgiveness, about being able to obey in a new way, all of that is happening. And when Jesus does this, and this is the part that I think is so important for us, when Jesus does this, something happens to the people that He has the Bible study with. Okay? It happened on the road to Emmaus. 2431, look at what happens. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They recognize him, their hearts burn with zeal. And there's an opening that happens. He's opened to them the Scriptures. And look at the language that in our text. Verse 45. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This opening is what you and I are dependent upon if we are to recognize who Jesus is. This is a supernatural 
work of God's Spirit in the heart of sinners, where God comes and through Jesus unlocks the Scriptures and opens our minds to see what we previously did not see. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that there was a veil. that Without Jesus, there's a veil there. And we can't see the glory of God until that veil is removed. And it is only through Jesus that the veil is removed and we are able to see and the meaning is open for us. Christ opens what Scripture means for His people. And when He opens, our hearts begin to burn. Our hearts begin to burn. It begins to make sense. We begin to see with clarity, oh, that's the meaning of the universe. (laughs) Oh, that's why these things have happened in my life. Oh, that's what that's about. Oh, that's why I feel this way. Oh, it makes sense now. The story emerges. This is what my life is for. This is what I'm supposed to live for. This is why God put me here. This is what His providence has been leading me to. It makes sense. I have clarity. My eyes can see. Jesus has opened my mind. The Scriptures make sense. The Scriptures are now synonymous with, the, with, the, with history. This is the universe. This is the, the history of the world right here unfolded in the Scriptures. And my life has merged with this story. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe that we all too often underestimate the importance of Scripture. We talk about it as Christians, right? We, we have those little verse memes on Instagram, you know? It's a good little verse. We get, we get the little verses, mottos, written on mirrors, crocheted or tattooed or personalized, whatever. But we like little, little, little proof texts. We like little encouragements. We like it because it sounds good. We often rip it right out of context and make it say something it completely doesn't mean. Like that one in Philippians that all the athletes like. I think it's like 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which does not mean you're going to win the football game. It probably in context actually means you're going to lose the football game. Because that's the point that Paul's making is that I am like hungry right now as an apostle, but I can endure through Christ who strengthens me. I'm losing in life, Paul says, but because of Jesus, I can get through this. But, but we rip all that apart, and we don't understand that. And, and here's the truth. We, we are destitute. We are starving because we don't understand the Bible. We are malnourished. And, and Jesus, He keeps starting here. Because what he wants us to understand, church, is that we cannot begin to even imagine how we're supposed to live in this world if we do not start here in the Scriptures. Jesus has to open our eyes. We don't get this intuitively. You don't get this at the beach by looking at the beautiful sunset. Now, you get something there. You get to worship the God who created all that. But you need Him to come down and speak to you. And that's what he's done in Scripture. We don't need a life verse. We need this story. Listen, we need this story to sink into our bones and saturate us to the point that this story replaces every other story that we try to live by. Do you see the difference? 
Do you understand that this world is not neutral? That when you sit at home on Saturday like I did yesterday and watch Auburn crush Kentucky? That's right. And watch the Bengals beat the Titans and just sit there. That those commercials aren't neutral? That the display on the field isn't even neutral? That there's danger there in that whole narrative? That the world is trying to liturgize our hearts to make us believe that the good life is defined in some other way than what Jesus tells us here in Scripture? I mean, I, I promise you last week, every single person in this room heard the story somewhere that, that, that success in life, that the good life is measured by somehow you achieving something and calling yourself successful. Every single one of you heard that somewhere last week, I promise. If you didn't hear that one, you heard this one. That the good life is defined by money. And so your life mission needs to be to accumulate as much money as you can possibly get. The nicest car, the nicest house, the nicest clothes, the nicest whatever. The good life is defined in these ways. This is what you need. Or, the good life is defined by pleasure. If I can just have fun. If I can just be free sexually to do what I want. If, if I could just party like I used to. Then, then I would, I would, I would find the good life. You see, and then there's so many others. There's so many others. There's so many stories out there that your head spins just sitting around thinking about them. And then Jesus shows up, and he says to these people, and, and what they thought they thought that the good life would be when the Messiah came and politically conquered Rome and all the other political powers in the world. And Jesus didn't do that either, did he? Not in the way they thought he was. And Jesus says to his people, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. You don't need to worry about all the ways that the world defines success. You need to seek my kingdom. This is the good life. When you are in tune with me, you need to live in this story. And how do we live in that story without Scripture? We have to know Scripture, study it, listen to it, read it, talk about it. Church, this is why we read Scripture here. Maybe you wonder, why does Joe get up here at the beginning of the service and read Scripture? Because Scripture is what needs our attention. We, we need it for our hearts. This is what we need. Our whole life needs to be founded upon Scripture. This is why we have BFGs and equip studies and equip groups. This is why we encourage you to read the Bible every year. Because we realize that we aren't going to live in this story if our imaginations are captured by false stories, if our imaginations are captured by consumerism, if we spend more time shopping than reading our Bibles, if we spend more time on Instagram and Facebook than reading our Bibles, then we are opening our heart to live according to stories that aren't true. So there's a reason Jesus starts with a Bible study. 
Let Scripture be your motivation. But second, gospel and motivation. Look at what he does next, verses 46 and 47. So he opens their minds to see that everything was pointing to him, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So, so this is specifically what this story was leading to. That's what I've done. Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the, the Anointed One, the Promised One. And, and, and that's what the, the, the Christ was supposed to do. He was supposed to come and suffer and die, and on the third day, rise from the dead. And after that, that repentance, verse 47, and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, so I want you to note the connection. It's out of the story that comes the mission. And that's the way it always works. Whatever story you're living in is going to determine the decisions you make. If you're living in a certain story, you're going to live in pursuit of whatever the end of that story is. So Jesus starts with the story, and then He moves to the mission. So, so now that you understand the whole flow of redemptive history and how it finds its fulfillment in me, now understand that you have a place in this story. I came to suffer and die, to rise from the dead, so that you could go and preach, proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. This had to happen. That's one of the things, if you, if you read the Gospel of Luke, there's this little three-letter Greek word. It's, it's day, D-E-I, and it means it is necessary. And Luke uses it a lot. It is necessary. Jesus, at certain points in his ministry, would say, no, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that I suffer and die. It is necessary that I do this. Because from the very beginning, Jesus understood that he was on a mission. He had something that he had to accomplish. Now, why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? You know, there's always kind of been movements in the history of the church where to kind of put, take, take emphasis off of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection... So you've had movements where people have said, no, what we really need is just to follow his teachings. And, and, and I think it's wrong if you disagree with that, because we do need to follow his teachings. Remember in, in Matthew, he says that part of discipleship is teaching them all that I have commanded. But we don't choose his teachings over what he did, what he accomplished. It's both and. In fact, his teachings shouldn't be followed unless... He was crucified and resurrected, right? He's just another man if he wasn't crucified and resurrected. Jesus died. He had to. All of God's promises to God's people in the history of the world rest on Jesus crucified and resurrected. If Jesus doesn't die, there is no atonement. And if there is no atonement, we are still in our sins. Listen, the greatest problem in the world is that we are sinners in front of a holy God. And the solution to that problem is that God in His mercy sent forth His Son who joyfully went to the cross in order to die as our substitute for our sins so that 
at the end of that, Jesus could say, it is finished. You have been forgiven. Reconciled. We're not in our sins anymore if we are in Jesus. But He didn't stay dead. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Because, listen, if Jesus is still dead, then there's no reason to suppose that atonement has actually been made. It is, it is through His resurrection that victory over sin and death is proclaimed. It is only because He has defeated the grave that you and I have hope that the grave has been defeated. Our hope in eternal life is founded upon Him breaking death. Defeating death. Death can't hold you down because your Savior beat it. And we have been saved by this. Everything depends upon this. If you don't believe that Jesus was crucified and resurrected, then you are wasting your time here this morning. This isn't about moral principles, church. This isn't about encouraging us to live a little better life. That's futile. That's meaningless if Jesus didn't die and, and raise again, rise again. We worship a risen Savior. And, and He turns to us and He says, listen, because of what I've accomplished, you go Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is our mission now. Because we have complete confidence that the Savior who saved us can save any single person who comes to Him in faith. No exceptions. No matter what they've done. All nations. No matter what their lifestyle is. No matter their history. No matter their resume. No matter whatever. No matter their skin color. Of course no matter skin color. Do we still have to keep saying that? The Gospel goes to all nations. Jesus is not America's Savior. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not your tradition's Savior. He's not our socioeconomic class's Savior. He is the Savior of all. He is glorified when, when His kingdom is diversified. When there's people that make you uncomfortable sitting beside you, Jesus is glorified through that. That is a good thing. We're not supposed to all look the same. So we take the gospel as far as we can. He is setting things right. This, this, isn't, this isn't a local thing. This is a universal thing. And we're motivated because we understand the power of this gospel. Because, listen church, we have the one thing that our neighbor needs so desperately. We have... The answer to why. We have the answer to, to slavery, to sin. We have the answer to loneliness. We have the answer to anxiety. We have the answer 
to hopelessness and depression. We have the Savior of the world. Are we not going to share Him? Are we not going to at least just say, hey, come here and, and you can find what I've found? Sometimes there's this perception out there and I have people ask me, oh man, it must be really hard to be a pastor. And I always get a little offended by it, to be honest with you. Because, well, first of all, I think the reason why that perception's out there is because there's too many pastors that complain about it. Oh, this is so hard. You know, let me just tell you something. This isn't hard. This is a front seat to the greatest show on earth. I get to be in the room when the sinner repents and discovers that there's newness of life in Jesus Christ. I get to be there. God lets me call the pitches sometimes. This is a privileged church. We're here. We're on the, the front of this. We watch this. The power of the gospel is real. Don't forget it. Even if you're here today and it was like 50 years ago for you or 40 years ago or 30 years, don't forget how powerful the gospel is. Don't forget that the potential to transformation is always Jesus away. Jesus, He's right there. The most hardened sinner you've ever met, all He has to do is turn to Jesus and He will melt. That's the power of the Gospel. That's what God's entrusted us with. But He's given us a helper. You see, here's the thing. It, it gets even better. We're not on our own. Here's the third thing I want us to see. Spirit and motivation. Look at verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's a sequel to Luke. It's called the book of Acts. It's the part two. And it's, it's a good sequel. It, it actually lives up to the hype. It doesn't happen all the time in sequels as we know, but in this case it does. And, and there in Acts, at the beginning, God, there's this, there's this place, there's this event called Pentecost, and everybody's gathered at Jerusalem, and there's people there from all the nations, and the Spirit comes down in power, and the, the apostles receive the Spirit, they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin speaking. And as they speak the Gospels, they proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins, People are hearing the proclamation in their own language. And God saves thousands at one time on that day because these apostles are obedient to the call. And, and this verse 48 is important. You are witnesses of these things. Witness is really important in Scripture. We need witnesses, and you, you know how this works. I mean, if there was a car accident or a crime, the police, are, the first question they're going to ask is, did anybody see it? Did anybody see it? Were there any witnesses? In the New Testament, an apostle is one who saw the resurrected Christ. 
That's why there's no apostles anymore, church. In case you were wondering. I don't care what they say on TBN. Those are not apostles. Apostles saw the resurrected Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is trying to argue that he's an apostle too, he makes the claim that he too saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. So he's an apostle. We don't have apostles today. Our faith is based upon the testimony of these first witnesses. That's what Scripture is. Scripture is the testimony of the apostles, those who saw. So our faith rests on authority. Now, some of you have a problem with that. You go, well, I don't want to base anything on authority. I'm scientific. I'm empirical. Prove it to me, and then I'll believe it. And let me just say to you, that if that's really what you think, then you, you can't function in the world. Because you are believing things every single day on authority. Things that you've never seen and never been able to prove. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. Some of you have never been to China, but you believe there's a China. Why do you believe that? Because somebody told you that. You've never been. The pictures of the Great Wall could have been made in a computer lab. You don't know. Some of y'all don't think people walked on the moon. Y'all are crazy. And we believe all kinds of crazy stuff these days. We believe. I don't, I'm not going to go down this road today. But listen, if you believe some of the things that we believe, but you're still sitting here saying, I'm not going to believe the testimony of apostles who died, who died themselves for the things that they were proclaiming. A testimony that, that they all died for. Where all it would have taken was for them to have said, no, Jesus is dead, he's buried, here's his body right over there. And they would have quit being persecuted, but they didn't. They turned the world upside down because they met the resurrected Christ. We believe in their testimony. And we believe in the testimony of the Holy Spirit because Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of my Father. The promise of his Father is the Holy Spirit. You stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The power that you're going to be clothed with is the Spirit. He comes. He indwells God's people. He preserves faith. He reminds us of what Jesus said. He emboldens us to proclaim the truth. He's an inner witness with our spirit that these things are true. He's the one who causes new birth and faith and repentance. He does all of that. And when our motivation lags, He comes and takes over, and that's where He begins to do His work. And I'll add one more, just for good measure. It's not in the text. One more motivation. Have you noticed that as we've gone through, that every single one of these conversations where Jesus is talking with the apostles after the resurrection they're all a community of people he's talking to. He doesn't come and give this calling, this mission to an individual. He comes and he gives it to a group. 
He gives it to the eleven who would soon find a twelfth to replace Judas and who would soon go and proclaim and churches would be established all over the known world. It's to us. It's to the community. And we get a picture of it in Acts 2. What does that look like? Acts 2, right after Pentecost, right after the Holy Spirit comes, we see this. And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They go and they, they make a counterculture where they share possessions, and they practice reconciliation. You know, we read Acts 2, and we're like, well, that sounds like communism to me. (laughs) You know what it sounds like? It sounds like gospel at work. Transforming hearts. Take your political lenses and throw them away, and come to the Scriptures with eyes to see. And see what Jesus will do. The mission happens when the church lives as the church. That's when God begins to add day by day those who are being saved. And church, that is my prayer for us in these days. That as we gather in our homes tonight in BFGs, when you gather at coffee shops this week in equipped groups, you come here on Wednesday for equipped studies, wherever other times you meet, that that fellowship would grow so that a counterculture, so that the values of the kingdom of Christ would trump the values of everything else out there in this world. And that God would use that fellowship as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching to bring in the masses to come and say, we want what those people have. That can happen here. Let's pray together.